Welcome to Founders of Nations, Conversations with Azerbaijanis. Hi, and welcome to the Founders of Nations. This is Matthew Grace, and today we're going to be doing part of our series of Conversations with Azerbaijanis. So today we'll be talking to Togrul Shukuru. Uh, so Togrul, welcome in. Uh, hi, Matthew. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. So could you maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, you know, where you're from, what you do, that kind of thing? Sure, uh, of course. My name is Togrul Shukuru, as you just said, and you did pronounce it right. Thank you. Um, I, I live and currently work as an attorney in the United States in the Washington, D.C. area, but I am originally from Azerbaijan. I was born in uh, the capital city of Baku, and that's where I grew up. And I moved to the United States when I was 18 for college and have been here since then, although I go back and forth. My family's still back in Azerbaijan, so I'd like to think I'm fairly well connected, despite the fact that we're a continent and an ocean away. Definitely, definitely. So do you have any family members that live here or is it just everybody's back home and you're the only one here? Uh, I have some extended family members and I also, my brother uh, from my nuclear family, my brother is the only person in the United States and he's like me, he lives and works here. Um, gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, so, you know, uh, of course, most of the people I've talked to are pretty good at speaking English. So they come from, I guess, like a, a class of people in Azerbaijan that, that learned to speak English very well. Would you say that that's pretty common in Azerbaijan or would you say it's not real common? Uh, you know, I'd say compared to most other nations that I've had the pleasure of sort of exposing myself to, I have noticed that our folks tend to be receptive of foreign languages. I think English is commonly taught as a foreign language in most public and private schools, uh, especially back when I was growing up in the 90s. Uh, the Azerbaijani people saw education as sort of one of the means of progressing and escaping poverty and all the uh, bad things that came with the fall of the Soviet Union. So really making their children learn English or German or French, whatever the case might be, whatever they had access to at the time was a big deal. So I say a lot of people do speak English very well. And we do have a knack for losing accents, I think, as a people, as a consequence of the fact that we, uh, you know, we, we are identified as a Turkic people in general, and we speak we, our language is similar to Turkish, uh, but we've also had a great deal of Farsi uh, influence from before the uh, 19th century. And then from then on, the Russian influence and a lot of people speak uh, both Russian and Turkish and our own language, Azerbaijani. So it does tend to uh, sort of, you know, put you in the in the right mindset to lose accents because you tend to want to pronounce things the way people will understand as opposed to the way it comes natural to you. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, all right. So are there, would you say there's a sizable number of Azerbaijanis that move overseas to do different things or uh, is, is that not real common? Uh, it's, it's becoming more and more common. I think it's become more and more common since the nineties. Obviously before then we've, we've had to deal with the Iron Curtain um, and and prior to that, there was, you know, in the old 19th century is when sort of the Azerbaijani people start to get access to uh, the Western world and mainly travel for education, but there was no big formation of a diaspora until the 90s, I'd say. Gotcha. Okay. 
And that was just kind of like most of the place in the Iron Curtain. There was this big exodus of people after it collapsed. Exactly, exactly. And it's mostly the uh, mostly in our case, it, it's, it was not seeking um, sort of material wealth. Uh, Azerbaijan was relatively wealthy compared to, you know, especially the part where my parents would have lived at the time because of oil. Um, but it was the freedom of thought. And it's just what you would call lifestyle migrants who had good, good income and perhaps a degree of respect and social economic status back home, but just couldn't really, you know, felt themselves bogged down in the society that they thought was they were ahead of in many ways. So, but yeah, but certainly we have unskilled uh, migrant labor force as well that has sort of exploded in search of jobs that not everyone did uh, was fortunate to, enough to be sort of in the educated and wealthy class in the 90s when the Soviet Union uh, collapsed. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Um, all right, great, great. So, um, what what do your parents do? Is your dad also an attorney? Uh, no, my dad, uh, by education, was an engineer, uh, but I, from what I understand, he didn't do very much of that. He was a businessman by the time I was born. I understand he was a he taught in driving school uh, to uh, in the police academy version of a driving school. I understand at some point that's when the last last he used his engineering degree, but. Um, but I was well before I was born. So from what I've known him, my whole life has been a businessman. Uh, my mother is a doctor. Um, she was she was educated in the Soviet Union, and by the time I was born, she was just about starting her career as a doctor. So. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Nice. All right. Great. Great. Okay. So, is there much of a push in your family for historical things? Is there? Would you say that your family are like history nerds, maybe, or not really, or? Uh, I wouldn't say so. I say I, you know, I'd say probably in our family, almost everyone is a little interested in history. My father certainly is. My uncles very much so. My grandpa. Um, I, I know in in our society in general, I think history is. Um, I've noticed just people tend to like it. They want to know more about it. There is a prevailing uh, thought that the Soviet Union and before then the Russian Empire uh, had a lot to do with sort of falsifying our history or re rewriting it in a in a way that served them. And there is sort of an, uh, almost every Azerbaijani person, I, 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 from my perspective, has had this deep yearning to find the true history of our nation. I think there's definitely that push. Although I would say it doesn't translate to necessarily uh, sort of, you know, a lot of historians coming out and doing the, the kind of digging that's necessary to find the factual truth. Uh, what we end up having is a lot of just people who want to re rewrite history. Um, that's it then. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Do you think there's a reason why that's not academic yet? Is that because of government stuff or do you think it's just because there's not a lot of resources for it, or it could probably a combination of both, to be honest, and probably a lot of other factors that I am not, you know, well versed enough to think about. But there's definitely both of those. Um, there is, you know, there is there is a need for for continuity in history, and so the current government, as much as the Soviet Union and as much as the Russian Empire do have a need to not completely delegit delegitimize the past from which they come. 
I don't know to what extent you, you're familiar, but many of the governing structures of Azerbaijan are direct descendants of the governing structures of Azerbaijan SSR uh, that came from the 90s. We don't really have a clean cut or a revolution. Many of the people who were in power are the people who were empowered that remain in power through independence. And then they have evo they've evolved and the structures have evolved, of course, but I'd say no one is interested in uh, in in finding all of the truth, uh, no one who has the resources to do it anyway. So a lot of the writings of the founding uh, era and before are there. Uh, they're certainly not inaccessible. They're sitting there in archives, uh, in libraries. They're just not pursued. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I I didn't realize that about a about Azerbaijan that they there wasn't it wasn't a revolution. It was just the breakdown of the Soviet Union that. Well, there was there was a popular there was a popular front who came to power, but we uh, you know there was a bit of a complicated situation. Like in most post-Soviet regions, there was a war um, over the disputed territory between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and in our case, it just turned out to um, to help defeat the popular front and uh, and change the government back to uh, to the folks who were in power before the popular front came. So. Uh, they they continued the the, the independence and the that they their policy was to remain independent and become more independent. So they were by no means I'd say Moscow uh, files in any way, uh, but they were certainly not nationalistic or right wing, uh, more sort of traditional conservative um, thinking. I'd say people who just want to mainly preserve stability, make sure that the war doesn't get out of hand, we don't lose more territories. That sort of thing. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Good. Good. Okay. So um, we'll just get right into the into the podcast topic here. So when you think about the word the founder of our of Azerbaijan, is there a specific person that comes to mind, or are there many people that you think are kind of on the same level? How how do you take that? Yeah, you know, I think to my mind, uh, one person comes to mind. That's Mehmed Amin. Rafuzadeh, um, that's his full name. I, he was part of a founding generation, I think in many respects, uh, he was not alone. And certainly the things he did, he could not have done alone. And the folks that worked with him and in the same generation probably deserve a lot of credit, but he has become a name and sort of symbol of, I'd say the founding generation, much like you know George Washington might have become the symbol of the founding generation uh, for Americans, you know, although he probably didn't do it all himself. So in that regard, I would say Mehmed Amin Rasulzadeh, which I've helpfully brought a book here with his picture. Um, so this is what he looked like, traditional mustache. <laughs> so so you'd say he, among most Azerbaijanis, he kind of has the same place that George Washington does in the States. I, in terms of name recognition and associating him with the founding of the nation, I'd say yes. Uh, he was not a military commander, so it's you know yeah. different different circumstances, but definitely I, I'd say recognized as uh, the leader of the first um, Republic of Azerbaijan. Gotcha. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So that it's it's not usually that clean cut. Most countries I've I've interviewed, there's so many different ideas, and uh, but. I have gotten his name a lot in the interviews I've done with Azerbaijanis. So that makes it a little easier. Yeah. Yeah. When you, you know, it's, it's, 
a bit of a result, I think. You know, the movement, the independence movement, uh, that was headed by him, didn't have the time to um, to fully percolate and sort of establish itself. In two years, it Make was mistakes. Yeah, and it was swiftly sort of uh, removed from power, and he was exiled after that. So the idea of the movement is still very much romantic and. Mm. As such, I think it's much more prone to sort of, you know, being reduced to one person. He was especially because very visible even after he, he was exiled. So gotcha. people remember him well. Mm. Gotcha. All right. Good, good. Uh, okay, great, great. So that, that definitely makes it easier uh, for me. So when you think of the, uh, is it Razul Zadi? Yeah, Rasul Zadeh. The first one is S, yeah. Okay, Rasul Zadeh. What stories do you think most people kind of learn growing up or that, you know, maybe everybody would associate with him? You know, you you brought George Washington earlier. There's a story about the cherry tree. Have you heard of that story? I have, yeah. No, it's most likely not true, but everybody that knows George Washington knows about the cherry tree. Are there any stories like that? Are they kind of ubiquitous with his name? Yeah, I would say we, we, there's not many mytho- there's not much mythology. I'd say that sort of stories. No, there was a well-known speech that he gave when uh, when the I believe it was the occasion of the first sitting of the parliament of the Azerbaijan Democratic Republic, um, it, and what, that's the speech which ends essentially that with the phrase "flag once raised shall never uh, be lowered." Roughly rough translation there. Uh, in our native language. Um, and that's been the motto of the independence movement ever since. Um, the, when I say the independence movement, we have to keep in mind that 1920, Azerbaijan was no longer independent. The Soviet, Soviet Union came in. But through that time, since 1920, up until we regained our independence, that motto played a very significant role in just energizing the independence movement and keeping it alive. Uh, people took that as a challenge and I'd say sort of a, a uh, almost an order from the leader of the nation to everyone. You know, we, as in we've, we've done a lot and been through a lot to raise this flag and the flag, which in that speech he described as the symbol of our independence um, and described its colors and what they mean uh, uh, so that's been very, very significant in our history. I think there's probably not a single Azerbaijani person who doesn't know the motto um, of the flag uh, once raised shall not again fall. Um, so that's probably one of the most popularly well-known, uh, I'd say, histories. Almost no one knows the speech. And uh, although we probably all know the general you know, context that what the flag means or you know, the three colors represent our Turkic uh, civilization and the Islamic civilization, and then the democratic values of the West, uh, the three colors. Um, so everyone, I think, knows about the speech. Everyone knows the motto, um, and it's it, it's yeah, it's a very important place in our history. I'd say. It sounds kind of like Martin Luther King with his "I Have a Dream." Everybody in America knows "I Have a Dream," but then very much so. Yeah. about the rest of it, they're like. Uh, <laughs> right, exactly, and you know, and and it had. I th- I'd say even it's, it's a perfect example. I hadn't thought about it before, but it affected people the same way. Even the people who were not necessarily 
uh, you know, intelligentsia or would would care independence, no independence, part of this empire, that empire. Uh, they took that instruction just the same way as a lot of people who may not have necessarily paid attention to the speech or even ever heard of it uh, know what I have a dream means. And they use that to energize themselves and, you know, for racial progress or all sorts of other things. So same, I'd say for the independence movement, um, it, it, it's a motto. I don't know what we'd do without it, to be honest. It's definitely one of those sort of phrases that energized a movement for more than a hundred years. And uh, I would personally say uh, it's probably instrumental in making sure that the people didn't forget uh, over the hundred years and took the next opportunity, which came in the nineties and became independent again. If not for his passion, in that speech and many others, and in that particular phrase that so well translates through the phrase, um, not many people in Azerbaijan and that in that year or later had that kind of passion. And if he didn't translate it to other people, I don't know that you know someone else might have come along and done the same. Gotcha. If it wasn't for him, yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah, that's a, that's definitely an important one. So yeah, he's he's much younger than George Washington would have been. So there's not probably the kind of legends that we have. Right. Yeah. It was it wasn't all. It was you know, and he himself as a prolific writer, he was an educator. Wrote in almost every newspaper that would let him uh, have a column in. So uh, what we know about him, what we is what we he has said. So it's, there's not too much room to um, to you know legend. And he would not have liked it. He was a deeply rational man would have absolutely hated the idea of mysticizing himself or others doing it to him. Gotcha. All right. So um, when you think about him, what do you think his main contributions were other than this motto? Obviously, that was a big one. Are there any other things that you think he really contributed to the nation? Uh, absolutely. I, you know, he was, a, as I said, prolific writer. And his writings early on started as, you know, essentially part of the education movement in Azerbaijan, I would say the enlightenment movement uh, that published, wrote nonstop. Uh, you can see examples of sarcasm. You can see, you know, a, a debate culture evolving uh, in many ways. Uh, I'd seen recently one of my friends compared one of the magazines of the time, Mullah Nasreddin, to Charlie Hebdo in that it was very edgy, very, very provo provocative. Some of the cartoons that are, are unimaginable, you would be putting yourself at risk printing that stuff now, let alone 100 years ago. Uh, and, and he was very much a member of this movement of provoking people to think for themselves to get education. His father was in a mom, uh, but gave him good preliminary education and then allowed him to be educated in the Russian school in Baku and then the Russian Technical College. So he viewed education as as the path to salvation for a nation in, in, in his words, I think. Um, in one of the writings that he wrote back in 1907, a full 10 years before the independence movement really picks up steam, uh, he wrote that there is only one way for a nation to prove that it, it deserves independence, which is through realization of its own rights in its mind. And that can only be accomplished by education, education, education. It's also one of the well-known phrases uses prasvashenia is the Russian word, he uses that word, but translates to education. So I think in that sense, he was very influential. 
in creating the Azerbaijani nation in the minds of the people. I'd say before the movement with, of which he was a part in, in the late 19th um, and the early 20th century, uh, the folks in the region knew they were a, a people because they spoke a language, the Azerbaijani language. But historically, they'd come from all sorts of backgrounds. You know, the Russians called all of us Tatars or Muslims, generic name. Um, and, and so there was really, you know, a search for identity at the time of the Musavat party's establishment, uh, which was the party of Rasul Zadeh, he wanted independence or at least a federation within Russia or federative status within Russia. Uh, at that time, you had parties that wanted a pan-Islamic sort of caliphate-like structure and believed we're just Muslims and anything beyond that is blasphemy and dividing people into nations is wrong. Uh, we had people who believed that we were just part of Russia or, or, you know, and it's treasonous that we want to be independent or join any other empire. And then there were also people, of course, that wanted to just join Turkey. And so there was really the, the, the idea of Azerbaijani people as a sovereign uh, was non-existent, I would say, before the 19th century and the 20th century. So he was instrumental in creating, but also instilling that idea in the people. And if you think about it, it's remarkable that the idea that him and the founding generation was able to instill in people actually persisted, despite the fact that they only had two years of power. And before then, they had about 10 years of operating you know, underground because of course it was illegal to want to be independent from the Russian empire. And they just used the opportunity of the, of the Russian civil war to, you know, to gain power for the brief two years. But despite that fact, uh, you know, in the nineties, it, it was unquestionable that of course we were going to be independent. In the twenties, when the Soviet Union came back, they tried very hard to incorporate Azerbaijan as one of the other republics within Russia, like Chechnya and other uh, other Caucasian republics still are to this day, but uh, it, remarkably, the idea of an independent nation was already born. And you know, as I said, the people took that motto very seriously. And Azerbaijan, you know, through some wheeling and dealing, of course, too, uh, managed to enter the Soviet Union as a sovereign Azerbaijan Soviet Socialist Republic, which gave way to independence later on. So I, I think the biggest the biggest contribution would be the national identity that he has gifted us. And and second one that comes after it would be the what what is that national identity? And in in the despite the fact that the region, the time we were in would, was not necessarily conducive to this, he created the Azerbaijani national identity to stand for education, progress, equal rights, not, principles of non-discrimination, principles of peaceful coexistence. These are all the things that are in our declaration of independence. Uh, the principle of non-discrimination based on sex, gender, uh, religion, all of that in 1918 uh, made their way into the constitution well, well ahead of our time. It gives, I think, a lot of people in Azerbaijani society, even today, a lot of leverage to push for progress, to, to, to be able to say, hey, listen, this is our national identity. You know, this isn't just us bringing you know, Western values as folks who are opposed to progress will usually accuse you of doing. Um, but so it, it, that's very powerful. I think, you know, just the fact that A, he built the national identity and then two, he had the fourth foresight to build it on the kind of values that will indeed help us, you know, as a people going forward and stand hopefully the test of time. 
Um, so those are, I think are incredible contributions that uh, very few people in Azerbaijani history can claim they were a part of that. There was this very exclusive group and he was certainly a leader among them. Hmm. Would you say that most people, you know, I mean, you know, that, that's a part of the culture now, I, I would think, where it's, it's pretty ingrained. Do you, do you think that most people know that that came from him and the people he worked with, or is it just kind of nebulous that that's who we are? I, I wouldn't necessarily say, and I wouldn't say it's, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's completely internalized. There's, you know, every everyone interprets sort of the Azerbaijani national identity to suit their, to suit their own needs. And certainly that's the way I like to look at it. Um, there are others who want to look at it their own way. Um, yeah, you know, there's, um, it's up to debate, I'd say. I don't, you know, there's certainly people who view uh, ADR and the movement as an example of what happens when weak people come to power, you know, they, they perish. So they use that as an example of, this is why we need a strong state structure and we can't afford to be chaotic, which would be a synonym for democratic in that sentence, you know, so, um, yeah, I'd say definitely people try to pull it their own way. Gotcha. But no one would push him in any other light. Everybody would, would agree that this was who he was, at least. Whether they I, I, they're, they're not I trying to claim him on the right. Right, I think so. It would be very difficult, I think, you know, and he was ideologically, I think, unmoored, and some people dislike that about him. It's very difficult difficult to say he was this or that because he was a very pragmatic person. After exile, he went to Berlin, tried to recruit Azerbaijani uh, prisoners of war uh, that the Nazis had captured to fight for the Nazis because he was promised that we can make Azerbaijan independence again. And then in 1943, he realizes Nazis are not interested in that and just leaves. And then he you know, tries to trick for, uh, arrange for some sort of uh, operation to have the prisoners of war uh, brought to Turkey so that they're not turned over back to the Soviet Union. One day. So uh, he's just an example of a man who can work with anyone for his goals, uh, didn't really care whether there was left or right, you know, whether uh, what you called him, what he called other people, he didn't care about any of these things. He had one goal in mind, which is the well-being of the, of the Azerbaijani people. And um, so in, in that respect, you can certainly like him or dislike him, but because of that, because he was very open about what he was and wrote a ton, it's very diff difficult to mischaracterize him, I, I, I think. I see, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So we talk a lot about the good things and that's what most people know about these guys. Would you say that there were some, some drawbacks to what he, would you say he made any mistakes that maybe he would have even said, oh yeah, this was a mistake or, um, it's hard to say. I mean, he certainly, uh, looking at his life, I don't know it as well as perhaps some other people, but I can't pinpoint, let's say, a mistake that I, I'd say, you know, this was evil, you know, in that a bad, bad choice here. Um, I can't say I see anything like that. There's certainly a lot of mistakes by way of, you know, you can question the efficacy of what he was doing. Certainly try, trying to work with the Nazis, you can question whether that was sound. Uh, of course, you do have to consider that, you know, to him, the Nazis weren't Nazis at the time. He was there there as a guest. I'm sure they told them things that he wanted to hear. And once, once he realized uh, he, that's what was going on, he left. 
that was probably questionable. You know, uh, a man of his stature probably should have been better aware of what the fascist danger was and what what how dangerous it might be to try to uh, wheel Azerbaijanis to fight for him. Um, the blowback, I mean, if the scheme would, was discovered at the time, the blowback from the Soviet Union alone might have ended the nation as we know it. So very dangerous games that he played at some times. Um, but yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, certainly a lot of people fault him for ineffectiveness of the Republic. I don't know to what extent he could have done anything to to match the military might of the Bolshevik army. I mean, uh, he did, unlike most other leaders, he persisted. He went to exile in a mountain village in Azerbaijan when he was first, you know, thrown out of power. And he, he tried to mount the resistance, but the resistance was briefly quashed and he was forced to work with the Soviets. So he, he agreed to work with them. Another example of a deeply pragmatic man, he worked with them uh, in their quest to establish a Southern Azerbaijan Soviet Socialist Republic, which is the parts of Iran that form you know, I'd say the core of Azerbaijan from prior uh, us joining the Russian empire, um, the people there speak our language, they have the same culture and they live in the province of Azerbaijan, the province is called Azerbaijan. Um, at the time, I understand the Soviet Union had a project, to little project to, uh, you know, use the fact that Iran was weak and grab some land from there. And they were gonna use Azerbaijani nationalism as part of that. And certainly, Rasulzadeh was no uh, stranger to Azerbaijani nationalism in South Azerbaijan. He was in exile there before independence, and he wrote prolifically for the rights of the Azerbaijani in Iran and for their right to be educated in their own language and to have some sort of self-rule. So uh, maybe that's the weakness. Maybe that's what you can say is, you know, uh, deeply pragmatic to the point where he was susceptible to being used by almost anyone as long as you know they they realized what he wanted and they they could effectively promise it to him or fool him into thinking they can for a while but then again he was a smart man i think he he wasn't to totally played i think he was playing the game of, he would say on his own terms yeah i see gotcha yeah yeah you know like with george washington he was especially in the beginning he was not really a great commander that was the main thing he didn't <laughs> be the commander right in the beginning, he just wasn't because you know he was doing something he'd never done before, and just like, just like him, he's making mistakes as he goes. But exactly, yeah, and you can see that in Rasulzadeh. I mean, you see a lot of growth again. Like it's like I said, because he wrote so much, you can you can read his progression in many ways. In many ways, I think you know you can compare him to uh, the founders like Hamilton and Jefferson and Madison because they're so prolific writers. You can almost you have a window into their minds, you know. Um, I, he he very much liked them. He did write to persuade, but it's also a, very much a window into his own mind what he was thinking. It was not someone who was lying. Uh, I'd say he wasn't someone who was in the habit of just telling people whatever they wanted to hear. Uh, I see. Yeah. yeah. Good. Good. Okay. So uh, it's kind of an obvious one, but I always ask it just to be complete. Uh, so how do you feel when you think about him? What kind of feelings come into you? you know, there's definitely a lot of gratitude, as you can tell. I'm grateful for the contributions he has made and in many ways defined, you know, the future of the Azerbaijani people from um, the point that 
he left it off. Um, set some lofty goals, I think, which are good and uh, righteous and um, thankful for that, for not, you know, creating a nation based on the kind of ideals that one might might have been disgusted of, you know, that, that has certainly happened. And if he had done so, we would have been stuck with that being the first Azerbaijani Republic. And, um, but so he didn't, so that I'm very grateful for those things. So there's a lot of gratitude. I do um, feel some degree of, I think, sadness in that, in knowing that he, he led a very difficult life and he sacrificed a lot. Usually the redeeming part of that is that you at least die knowing that you've succeeded. That was not the case for him. He lived most of his life in exile, most of his life as poor by way of, you know, certainly was intelligent enough to work hard and make a lot of money if he wanted to, but that's not the life he chose. So um, as, during the times when he was a prolific publisher, he financed his works and he found money whichever way he came. So he was never really someone who led a comfortable life. Even in the two years that he was a head of, um, I'd say nominal head of state because he was the leader of the biggest faction in the parliament. Of course, he didn't actually have any official titles, by the way. He was neither the, pre neither the president nor the chairman of the parliament or anything like that. Um, but even the time when he was the most influential person in Azerbaijan, he was relatively poor, you know, and, and he, he had a difficult life. The people who went to Paris Peace Conference, for example, didn't, there was no treasury. So they were, they were lending money from their friends and whatnot to, to, to go on the train to go to the Paris Peace Conference. So all these things, um, I'm saddened knowing that he, he, you know, he, he lived a life of struggle and he never got to bear any fruit for the most part. He's you know, thankful that he at least got to see the flag go up once. And he said the word that he said, but you know, it's, it's hard to, I think, accept the reality that despite the fact that he was such an influential figure in our history, he wasn't all that popular by the time he was, he was dying. In, in Turkey, I believe in the 50s. Um, uh, he was, I think, successfully, probably his image was rewashed by the Soviet authorities. Certainly not a lot of people cared about him in Azerbaijan. And if you sort of go back to that time, near his death, I can't help but think that he was probably feeling like a defeated man. And uh, certainly doesn't look that way now, I think, thousands, if not millions of Azerbaijani people across the world see him as their leader and are willing to fight for his ideals, despite the fact that, you know, it's not necessarily the easiest thing to do even under the current governing regime. Um, so, you know, in the end, he is not a defeated man, but I do get sad knowing that he probably thought he was close to his bet. Um, yeah. Yeah, good. Okay, thank you. So now, as far as uh, as far as the, the deeper culture goes, I know we've talked about this a little bit already, but do you think that there that he's had an impact on kind of the identity of Azerbaijani people, not necessarily the political identity, maybe, but just the regular cultural identity? Do you think he had a big impact on that, or do you think that was probably people farther back in time? No, it's definitely him. I mean, or his generation, I would say, for certain. I mean. The, the clothes that he wore, the picture that I just saw you and he's wearing a Western suit. This is not, this would not have been commonplace uh, at his time. So the switching from the more, 
I think, Islamic lifestyle to the more modern one, as you would describe it, or we would describe it very much part of his generation. Uh, now, it's part of, part of Russification, I'd say. The Russian Empire brought these opportunities, opened the Russian schools all over the empire for Muslims, and opened that window. But it was certainly one of the leaders of that generation that took us from a totally different lifestyle to the one that's recognizable as Azerbaijani now. Um, I'd say part of the religion taking, taking a back sort of um, background place, certainly big part of the Soviet uh, influence as well. But even before then, I mean, the, the education movement, like I said, was big on separating religious education from the earthly education as they would have called it at the time. But that was a big part. Yeah, I think his, his, uh, his insistence on modernization which for him, I, I think modern would mean something that encompasses the values of enlightenment, rationality. So a push to that was very, very important. I don't think we would have identity as a, you know, and a lot of Azerbaijani people are proud of the fact that we have the first democratic republic in the Muslim world and all of that. And, you know, compared to our geography, we are a force of progress in our geography. Uh, that as an identity would not have been there without him. Gotcha. Okay, good, good. Uh, now, just before we go, because we have a little extra time, we can talk about these. So I, I got some other names that were kind of older, that were maybe more cultural rather than national founders that some people mentioned, although almost everybody said who you said as the, the main guy. Uh, and I'll probably butcher these names, but I've got Koroglu and Babic and Ganjavi and Fuzuli. How would you say that, I mean, do you think that any of those were more important than others? Do you think that they had a big impact? How, what was the impact that they had, you think, if you were to kind of sum it up in general? I'd say huge, I mean, each of those has a huge impact on the cultural identity. They're all different characters. Turolu is more or less a mythical, uh, character. I mean, there's there. He might have existed, but he more or less a Robin Hood character, um, in in placed in somewhere in Western Anatolia or Eastern Caucasus. So you know the Turks claim it as well. They have their own version. Um, so there's that. I mean, he's there's a whole uh, work of uh, epos about him that people read at early in school, definitely an influential character. There's statues of him all over the place, but uh, there's no, you know, he's not a historical figure as we know him because he might've existed, but we don't know much about that. So that, that's that. Um, Babek is semi-mythical. He's certainly a historical figure and we know about a lot about him and his movement, but he started their rebellion against the Abbasids um, when the Muslims were trying to convert the people of the Azerbaijani geography to Islam. And they would, they would have been a proto-socialist cult, essentially. Uh, they believed everyone owns everything. And uh, yeah, very ahead of their time, very much, very, very communist ideology. If you, if you look at you know, the practice of how they divided land and all of that. But anyway, he, he was also one of the sort of, his influence on Azerbaijani culture is, you know, the, both with Karaglu and him is the streak of independence and rebelliousness and all of that. They definitely give us 
that into infuse that into our cultural identity. There's a lot of people like them in much more modern history. You see a lot of Robin Hood type characters in the Russian Empire age, and they're real characters. They they go and they defy the the queen or the king, and they they rob and redistribute wealth. So these two characters, I say, are very important precisely because they had that effect. It's not just that we learn about them, but they inspired a long streak of rebellions. The other two are poets and they're incredibly important for the development of our language. They are both, I believe, uh, both Farsi and Azerbaijani uh, poets in that they wrote in both of the languages, but particularly Nizami's uh, uh, works uh, are, are beautiful in that they put Azerbaijani culture uh, they take it, I think, from what otherwise would have been as one of the many small cultures in the region, so so to speak, and put it on the equal footing with the Farsi and uh, and Arabic and Russian uh, literature literative culture. I, the works are incredible, complex. They've been adapted both in uh, in the Farsi culture, made their way in into the Turkish culture as well. Um, Lelia Mejnun, for example, one of the well-known um, uh, works. So for, for Nizami, especially, probably a, a leader of the language, I'd say probably the first, first one who brings forth the Azerbaijani language as one. All of these people are very important, I'd say. I mean, uh, but there's so many of them that, that bring us to this point. With Resulullah, they're the easy, easy, what makes it easy to pick one person is that it's recent and that that generation, the movement was just short, you know, you can put into 30 years. The, the part of the movement that, you know, evolved Azerbaijani language at its, at its own, as its own language, because Turkic, of course, languages existed. They were just a military language. That's what the soldiers spoke, um, but slowly be becoming a language of the court didn't really happen despite the fact that there were many Turkic empires, they all used the Farsi as the language of the court. Um, I think Nizami Genjevi is the first probably court poet that also writes in, in Turkic, so elevates the language a lot. Gotcha, okay, good, good, thank you. All right, so uh, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Any shout outs you wanna to give to anybody or anything? No, I I can't think of anything to mention um, other than that, you know, I, I'm, I'm like I said, I'm grateful of the things that Mehmet Emin Resulzadeh, who is the person we chiefly talked about, grateful of the things that he has gifted us and his generation. Uh, and, you know, always, I think it's a duty of probably every Azerbaijani person to always try to uh, check themselves to make sure that whether to, to at least check themselves whether they are following those goals and progressing at the right pace uh, towards the right goals. Gotcha. So. gotcha. And so one other question I can ask thinking about that. So I know you talked about how he doesn't really necessarily fall in one political spectrum. Uh, would you say that it's mostly people who maybe grew up under, under the Soviet Union's time that or are, are there certain people who would think like, you know, like you said, he, maybe he wasn't really a good leader. Uh, would you say that they would, that they would think of him as somebody who 
was bad for the nation in general, or even they would think like, okay, he he did push us towards independence at least, and so we can at least see that. Or I know it's difficult to do that, not being somebody who's like that. Yeah, <laughs> no, I think I mean I think it's unquestionable that you know in Azerbaijani society, it's nearly impossible to come out and say Mehmed Amin Rasulzadeh is a bad guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Almost yes. impossible to come out and say that. There's people who dislike a lot of what he did. They can say he was ineffective in this or that. Uh-huh. They can blame him, for example, for giving away territory to Armenia, uh, which is something that the Azerbaijani Democratic Republic did. But of course, as a single person, you know, and he can be most criticized. I think he was, in fact, most criticized by the Bolshevik propaganda machine as a member of the intelligentsia and bourgeoisie. Nonsense, of course. He was poor, grew up. He couldn't even afford an education. Uh, oh, and by the way, he played an important role in establishing the first Azerbaijani university, which was also, you know, he still stands to this day, to this day and it carries his name. Uh, probably not, not the university he wanted it to be yet, but there's still some potential and that's a big deal. But yeah, so he was hit from the left, so to speak, politically as being a classical liberal and, you know, he was pro-market in many ways, um, but he was also for social welfare. He, you know, he, he wouldn't have left people out to dry, but he was hit from the left the most, I'd say, as being sort of too bourgeoisie. And, uh-huh. yeah, but he wanted the best for his people. And as he eloquently described it, how can you accuse me of being bourgeoisie when I never afforded my own education and I learned everything I learned just by working hard? So. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, yeah. All right. Good. All right. Well, thank you for coming today. Do you have any, anything else you want to talk about? No, thank you. Thank you so much for having me and dedicated the time to this topic. I, I know you do it for other nations and it's so interesting to hear about what other people have to say. So hopefully, uh, people will be interested in what we have to say today and we'll learn a thing or two about Azerbaijan. Which yeah, don't. I'm hoping. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. No problem. This interview has been a part of the Conversations series on the Founders of Nations podcast, a podcast where we seek to learn about the nations of the world by studying the lives of their founders. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, TikTok, wherever you like, or you can go to our website, www.langforlife.com slash founders. <laughs>